0: Hello and welcome to Narrative. Just hours after touching down from a landmark trip to the Middle East, President Joe Biden addressed the nation tonight on the Israel-Hamas conflict. He's asked all the parties to de-escalate tensions.
1: When I was in Israel yesterday, I uh, said that when America experienced the hell of 9/11, we felt enraged as well. While we sought and got justice, we made mistakes. So I cautioned the government of Israel not to be blinded by rage. As I said in Israel, as hard as it is, we cannot give up on peace. We cannot give up on a two-state solution. Israel and Palestinians equally deserve to live in safety, dignity and peace.
0: Biden also urged Americans to combat anti-Semitism and Islamophobia.
1: You know, and here at home, we have to be honest with ourselves. On October 7th, terror attacks have triggered deep scars and terrible memories. In the jewish community today jewish families worried about being targeted in school wearing symbols of their face walking down the street or going out about their daily lives you know i know many of you in the muslim american community the arab american community the palestinian american community and so many others are outraged and heartied saying to yourselves here we go again with islamophobia and distrust we saw after 9-11. Just last week, a mother was brutally stabbed. A little boy here in the United States, a little boy who just turned six years old was murdered in their home outside of Chicago. His name was Wadia. Wadia, a proud American, a proud Palestinian-American family. We can't stand by and stand silent when this happens. We must, without equivocation, denounce anti-Semitism. We must also, without equivocation, denounce Islamophobia.
0: Biden also had a blunt assessment of how Russia is doing in its war on Ukraine. The president also urged the House to pass the allocation of $100 billion he's requested for weapons to Israel and Ukraine.
1: I'm asking Congress to make sure we can continue to send Ukraine the weapons they need to defend themselves and their country without interruption so Ukraine can stop Putin's brutality in Ukraine. They are succeeding. Earlier this year, I boarded Air Force One for a secret flight to Poland. There, I boarded a train with blacked-out windows for a 10-hour ride each way to Kyiv to stand with the people of Ukraine ahead of the one-year anniversary of their brave fight against Putin. I'm told I was the first American to enter a war zone not controlled by the United States military since President Lincoln. With me was just a small group of security personnel and a few advisors. But when I exited that train and met Zelensky, President Zelensky, I didn't feel alone. I was bringing with me the idea of America, the promise of America.
0: On his return flight from Israel, Biden told reporters that Pentagon officials were working with IDF leaders looking for alternatives to an all-out ground war. But at this hour... That war appears to be inching closer to reality. Former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak warned a ground assault has received a green light. This echoes remarks by current Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, who told troops at the Gaza border to be ready for an invasion. Before leaving Tel Aviv, Biden convinced Egypt to open the Rafa border crossing and allow 20 trucks of aid into Gaza. That'll happen as soon as tomorrow morning but that aid is described as only being a drop in the bucket. Biden's speech offered solidarity to Israel, but urged de-escalation as the conflict impacts American lives. The speech comes as President Biden balances multiple crises at home and abroad, and it's why we have a very special guest tonight. Rick Petrie is an international investment banker and former corporate lawyer with a strong background in foreign relations. He's the son of a U.S. career diplomat. He was raised around the world. And he took a first-class degree in politics, philosophy, and economics as an undergraduate at Oxford. And he later graduated from Harvard Law School, where he was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. Not a slouch at all, Mr. Petrie. He lives in both New York and Istanbul, and as co-founder of the Global Power Partners LLC, a boutique investment banking firm specializing in renewable energy. He advises major corporations in Europe and the Middle East. As well, he's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. Rick, it's great to see you, and thank you for joining us. And also, Rick is a must-follow on Twitter. If you don't follow him, you're missing out on a lot of excellent news and information. How are you, Rick? I'm well, Zeb. It's nice to see you again. Likewise. been a while. We just heard President Biden's very impassioned plea to the parties involved to de-escalate tensions in the region. Do you think, as we sit here tonight, that the United States can succeed in de-escalating those tensions.
2: Obviously, the atmosphere is very charged. We're still early in the sort of emotional, moral shock of uh, what happened in Israel starting on October 7. And human nature being what it is, I think the reality is that while it's fine and proper to say what he has said, about de-escalating and urging Israelis not to make some of the same mistakes that Americans made in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, where we were certainly suffering under a similar degree of shock and outrage. I think one needs to say those things, but the reality is that uh, uh, it'll take time for some of the immediate passion to cool and for uh, more practical steps to be taken. Diplomatically and politically behind the scenes, which will allow that normalization to take place.
0: The, the president also stressed the risk to American lives. We saw today that the Pentagon claiming that the U.S. ships intercepted three missiles today. Unclear if they were really targeting the U.S. ships or going towards Israel, but certainly Americans are in the firing line. There are many Americans in Israel, there are American hostages that have been taken into Gaza. This is a threat not just to Israel. This is a threat to the United States, isn't it?
2: Certainly true. Anything that involves a threat to Israel is in one way or another a very serious threat to the United States. The commitment, the ironclad commitment to Israel's security, which remains, is a commitment based in the first place on A body of shared values. And that has caused Americans over the decades to look at Israel as one of the lone citadels of democratic values and the rule of law and order, et cetera, in a region where, let's be honest, most countries are ruled by authoritarians of one kind or another. The free press doesn't exist as it does in Israel. An independent judiciary doesn't exist as it does in Israel, on and on. There are all kinds of reasons why American interests are and have for a long time been intertwined with those of Israel. And that continues, and at least from my point of view as one American, it's one of the reasons why I I have decried the authoritarianism, the tendency of Netanyahu's government, he and his allies to undermine judicial independence, the so-called judicial coup. All of these things are dangerous, not only in their own terms, in terms of what they may do to Israeli society, but in terms of fraying this body of shared values, which is what holds us together as two peoples across an ocean.
0: Absolutely. That's such a critical point. This this underpinning of democracy is really what We have mostly in common with Israel. And as we look at Bibi's actions over the last few weeks, for one thing, he's been absent in the last few days. He has appeared, I think, a couple of times, but not really any major address to the Israeli people, him, for what's going on. And it's directly related to the fact that he has been conducting this judicial coup, as you point out, through this crazy legislation that he's trying to implement, which really will turn Israel slowly We're seeing firsthand the threats of what it means when you start playing with democracy. This is what it looks like. This is quickly the situations can turn. And Israel itself has been. I'm watching. (laughs)
2: I'm, I'm watching as closely as I can from a distance the evolution of Israeli public opinion in reaction to the Hamas attacks. And it is notable to me, as you say, that Netanyahu has been relatively absent. He hasn't made any large public appearances. I've read reports that he has appeared in curated, closed-door meetings, for example, with serving troops. And in one of those, he was heckled and shouted down and had to leave hurriedly. Mm-hmm. So I think it's not an accident that we're not seeing very much of Bibi because he has got to be, justifiably, unsure of his position and not wanting to expose himself to that sort of attack. It's really like uh,
0: President Biden has been uh, ruling Israel over the last few days. Just when you look at the reception he has gotten, uh, you know, he has been the man who has responded the most effectively in terms of leadership. Uh, And certainly Israelis and and family that I talk to are very, very thrilled at the fact that he's done that because they have seen a vacuum of leadership from Bibi Netanyahu. And Biden has stepped in a remarkable way. In in what is a testament to Biden's, I always call it diplomatic uh, jiu-jitsu, because he's able to... Just maneuver things in so many ways, on so many levels, on a multilateral way, reinvent the world to, to his needs. And uh, this just speaks to Biden's enormous experience over his decades uh, of experience in public service and in diplomacy. Yeah. It means we're, we and Israel are quite lucky to have that kind of leadership in place at this time. One shudders to think,
2: um, uh, you know, administration would do under the same circumstances. Yeah. I will. I I agree with everything you said. I've I've noted photographs and others, signs of billboards all over Israel, huge ones, welcoming President Biden, etc. It's quite remarkable. And I'm sure it's been helpful in Israel in the aftermath of the attacks. I have some misgivings because of what I imagine the United States will try to do in diplomatic terms within the region to knit things back together, I'm a little bit nervous about Biden being seen to be de facto a kind of leader of Israel Mm -hmm. in this moment. (laughs) When I heard that on his visit, it was planned that he would actually sit in the war cabinet Mm. and listen to their war plans Mm. and give comment, et cetera. Obviously, it's helpful if He's able in that setting to urge calm, a little more dispassionate and less immediately pained line of advice. But on the other hand, whatever flows from the war cabinet and whatever Israel now does in Gaza or anywhere else will be identified with the United States. Mm -hmm. And it will be said in Cairo and Riyadh and throughout the region that this is as much a U.S. invasion as an Israeli invasion. I don't think that will be helpful. Some measure of distance is going to be required on the U.S.'s part. And he's walking a very fine tightrope. I admire very much what he, what Secretary Blinken, others in the team have been doing. I think they've done as fine a job as anybody could do. But let's all be honest, this is one hell of a bad situation.
0: It is one hell of a bad situation. That's one way of putting it. The the attempts by D- Biden and Blinken seem to be centered mostly around the possibility that they can in some way get these hostages released. There are some 200 maybe hostages being held by Gaza in those tunnels. The thinking amongst the State Department officials is that they, if they can succeed in getting the hostages released or exchanged, then the whole war could be called off. Is that your assessment of, of what might happen if do- if a diplomacy track were to work, would that what it, what, what it would look like?
2: Possibly. There are those. Tom Friedman is one who has published calling for a, sort of a sequenced or phased approach to this, holding off the invasion, attempting the rescue of the hostages, if not by diplomacy, then by unconventional warfare methods. The Israelis are probably as good or better than most other militaries in the world at secret operations. But something that is more akin to the surgeon's scalpel than a blunderbuss or the proverbial elephant crashing around in a, a shop may be what's called for here. We'll have to see. I'm certainly not uh, in a position to make the kinds of close calls that they're going to have to make. But I'm pleased to see that for, for weather or other reasons, the invasion hasn't yet happened. And I'm hoping that there may be some developments that will enable us to avoid that, at least initially.
0: I think that's, that's quite true from reading in the latest assessments. It seems that they're holding off. They're hold- we did hear from uh, Israel's defense minister, Yoav Galan, today. He addressed troops saying, you now see Gaza from afar. Soon you will see it from the inside. The order will come. We've heard similar uh, mentions by former prime minister Ehud Barak, who said the green light has been given for a ground war. We have even heard from the economic minister who said that their priority will be to eliminate Hamas if there is a ground war, not to rescue the hostages. That'll be a secondary uh, priority, which I thought was interesting in terms of tactics, but, or to me, military strategy. But it is, they're ready to go. Certainly, that's what they're signaling to Israel and to the troops. The economic minister who said that um, their priority will be to eliminate Hamas if there is a ground war, not to rescue the hostages. That'll be a secondary priority. Uh, priority, which I thought was interesting in terms of of tactics, but um, or to me, military strategy. But it is, you know, they're they're ready to go. Certainly, that's what they're signaling to Israel and to the troops. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean it's coming. It just means that they're signaling that to the world and that they're mentioning that to make sure that Hamas and all the other players in the region are aware that they are fully ready to pour in 300,000 troops if they need to. It doesn't mean that they will.
2: No, exactly. And I think you're right to note that there's obviously a significant domestic PR strategy being executed, which is different than a military strategy. And they need to be seen by the Israeli people to be poised, forceful, especially, let's remember, coming from an administration that is an Israeli administration, which I think anybody would I have to say, was caught napping. So, you know, in, a, in the aftermath of that, from which there must be terrible embarrassment, chagrin, maybe even shame. they need to be seen to be forward-leaning, forceful, on the job, etc. But whether they actually act on it, I think, is yet to be seen. Biden t- my, by the way, I, my expectation is that they will.
0: That is interesting. My expectation and is that they won't, actually, because I think that the, the no. realities of entering that territory are just horrible. There's no winning this war, really. There is a... You might be able to conquer the territory. You might be able to do that. But you will lose so many soldiers. And the lives of these hostages are really... They're going to be in tunnels. They're going to be in booby-trapped tunnels. It's not going to be easy to get... Oh, it's horrible. Well, how? So... It just And then the civilians, there's such a two million Palestinians living there. You've got enormous suffering happening already. You've got misfires by uh, Hamas that are claiming hundreds of lives. I, it's a quagmire. And then the possibility that Hezbollah might march over the northern border and who knows who else might decide to join in this fight. It's a quagmire you just don't want to enter. Yes, you've been through a horror,
2: but... No. Yeah. do you go. And then well, they... look, oh. Zeb, we saw the... Enormous, instantaneous reaction throughout the Arab world, from Istanbul through to Tunis uh, to the i believe entirely false report that Israel had dropped a five hundred pound bomb on a Gaza hospital, and five hundred were dead yeah it didn't take two hours after those reports began to circulate for mosque for synagogues to start to be burned in Tunisia mm-hmm. for uh, crowds in Istanbul to start firing fireworks at the Istanbul consulate general uh, of the Israeli government. Um, they were marching last night on a U.S. radar facility mm-hmm. in Turkey, all because of this. Where It's not just that Gaza itself is a powder keg and a meat grinder in terms of what the Israeli military may face, but a full-out, brutal land assault in Gaza will, I think, ignite the region. Whether or not that means Iran and Hezbollah become overtly involved, I don't know. But I, what I'm saying is that in terms of the maintenance or the construction of a just peace for the region, which is, at the end of the day, what will make Israel safe, I believe, a ground war would be very counterproductive at this moment. Things are just very tense throughout the region.
0: Absolutely, and there are, there, if, the, if the priority is to... Eliminate the Hamas leadership. There must be ways of doing that without going through neighborhoods and leveling them and leveling cities and uh, removing half the population out of the region, which is impossible. And there have been reports
2: that top Hamas commanders are being taken. Yeah, been taken. Two. I've oh. seen reports of three yeah. three. yeah, it was made three. Okay. So, I agree with you. I, again, back to the surgeon's scalpel rather than the blunderbuss. Let's do this surgically. The the Israel that made the successful raid on Entebbe Mm -hmm. is an Israel that I think has the ways and means of handling this in a militarily dominant and internationally impressive way to show the strength and the unique capabilities of the Israeli military without sending 300 guys in, 300,000 guys in. Yeah. The bloodshed would be enormous if they do
0: We heard surprising echoes of de-escalation from Mohammed bin Salman today. That was reassuring to many people. He was talking to the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, and also the British Prime Minister today. And he's also encouraging de-escalation. Now, that is not surprising because he is quite in bed with the situation in terms of the fact that he needs and would like the Abraham Accord signed that the United States is brokering between Israel and Saudi Arabia to him. That is a, a real feature of his remaking of Saudi Arabia. So he is not hes not going to be opposing Israel's efforts. He's going to be looking for a de-escalation. And that seems to be the right kind of message from Arab leaders. However, on the other side, you've got the Jordanian king and, the, and al-Sisi, the Egyptian president, saying that, that Israel is participating in a sort of a genocide almost of Palestinians by going after the entire population there. And not just the actual fighters that, that, that carried out those attacks in Israel. Why do you see the Arab world lining up here? Do you see Saudi K- crown prince continuing to operate as a, maybe a sideline partner of the United States in quelling this? And can he play a bigger role as well with his new relationship with Iran?
2: Mohammed bin Salman is a very complicated character, in my view, and his relationships. Uh, are very complicated. There is, I believe, a strong relationship between Trump and Kushner and Mohammed bin Salman. There is a deep antipathy on the part of MBS for Biden, personally, I believe, which goes back to Biden as a candidate having spoken about Mohammed bin Salman as a pariah because of Khashoggi assassination. I'm told by very well-connected Saudis, whom I know well, and it's a place where I have done and do business, that it's a deeply personal, almost a vendetta, which we see also in the manipulation of the oil price in an attempt to hinder the re-election of President Biden. All of this from a U.S. perspective is playing out now on a very complicated chessboard in which I think, as you say, Bin Salman probably has an interest in fostering, furthering the Abraham Accords, not out of any particular strategic set of goals, but more for commercial and economic goals. There's been a lot of activity under the cover of the Abraham Accords between Israeli tech entrepreneurs and others coming into both the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Mohammed bin Salman has grand projects, at least has made great publicity about some supposedly grand projects at Naom, for example, a so-called tech city in the northeastern part of the kingdom. He, if There is Israeli involvement there. He would love to see that progressed. So on the one hand, yes, I think he has an interest in at least not blowing up the momentum which has already been created under the cover of the Abraham Accords. But on the other hand, I think it's naive not to credit him with an undue amount of authority or ability to sway the situation domestically. There, There is a true body of public opinion in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which while it may not be expressed freely in the front pages of newspapers, et cetera, weighs on and helps to shape policy of the government. And the initial reactions of Mohammed bin Salman to the October 7th events, I think, were a true, reliable reflection of where those pressures are tending. And they continue to tend that way. I think there's very strong affinity with or alignment with the cause of the Palestinian people. This is nothing new. It obviously goes back generations. And it is not going away. And it's something that's going to have to be dealt with. And I think he knows it. All of the rulers in the region know it. We talk about Mohammed bin Salman and feel it. it, You're right. Uh, And you go back to 2016
0: and you look at that. uh, The foreign players that lined up to back Donald Trump as a candidate uh, for president, whether they did so legally or illegally, is questionable. But the players there were Bibi Netanyahu, MBS, the UAE Crown Prince, MBZ, Russia, or probably China as well, Egypt. These are all countries that uh, that sought Trump as president and one would argue could uh, have maybe helped install him. I would say they did, Mm -hmm. especially with the Mm -hmm. operations of Cy Group and the like. So MBS is very much in the Trump world. Netanyahu is very much in the Trump world, certainly with his funding originally from uh, Adelson, uh, the same funding that brought about uh, Donald Trump and the 2016 GOP win. We're talking here about a very small group of people and a small concentration of,
2: of wealth, and yet they don't seem to be behind Donald Trump at the moment. As I say, because in part, they are influenced by or subject to pressures from their own domestic constituencies. You know, M- MBS still has to respond to and, and garner the support of a number of constituencies domestically. And I don't think he's fully achieved that in terms of uh, what's going on with the Palestinians. I think he still has to answer to that, and respond to that. It seems to me that when
0: he and Jared were enjoying those late night talks in 2017, they're staying up way too late, doing God knows what. But one of the things they were doing was redesigning the world or redesigning the Middle East. And it seems that in their attempts to redesign the Middle East, they thought they could just buy out the Palestinian leadership, that there would be a way them to just provide them with fancy cars or fancy neighborhoods or who knows what and get them to side with these Abraham Accords. And in fact, what they landed up doing was it created a real tension in the Middle East. Ultimately, they, the Gaza leaders, the Hamas leaders were ignored and, and in this whole process. And so you could argue that the reason that Hamas even launched this attack is because it's because of that. It's because of the Abraham Accords and because of the fact that they were Left on the sidelines by Jared Kushner, who subsequently got a $2 billion deal payoff from, uh, from MBS. There, there's a real con- stru- direct line between those two things.
2: I would agree. And I would talk separately about the $2 billion, et cetera. But it has to have been the case that the Hamas leadership saw the normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel impending. It was Close to happening, MBS himself had made statements to that effect that it was progressing and was nearing conclusion, and they had to have felt whether well, the exact timing of what they did when they did it related to that. But they have to have felt that they were being ex- excluded and ignored, as they have been historic. That's really nothing particularly new. Ironic, because as you and I were discussing before we went before the cameras. There's now very credible reporting out of Haaretz and Jerusalem Post and other places that the Likud government, Netanyahu particularly himself, lobbied Likud and spoke in public in front of a Likud conference in March of 2019, saying that if any of you here with me here today agree with our policy that the end goal has to be to delegitimize and suppress the Palestinian Authority governing the West Bank, our policy must be to support Hamas, including by financial transfers. This has been reported in Hareds. They've quoted the, the exact words in March of 2019. For Hamas to have felt that that relationship had run its road and come to the end and that they were being excluded it must have been a pretty dire signal from their point of view.
0: Absolutely. Let me ask you, with your experience in energy, there is no doubt that a protracted war in the Middle East can impact oil prices and, and production in the region. Do you think that there is a risk to the, to the immediate outlook in the United States economic-wise, but also looking
2: at the elections next year, if oil prices do start to, to climb out of control? The short answer to the last part of your question, would it impact the presidential elections if there were a dramatic spike in oil prices is certainly yes. Mm-hmm. It's conventional wisdom among mm-hmm. any U.S. politician groups that uh, rising prices at the gas pump are bad news electorally. Mm-hmm. As I said a few minutes ago, I believe at any rate that Mohammed bin Salman is purposely trying to impact the price, the global price of oil in part to have that electoral effect to the detriment of Biden. I think that's part of what's going on. Having said that, the U.S. economy is in exceptionally good shape, in my view. All of the numbers show that. And we're now producing oil on our own domestically at a rate and at levels that haven't been seen for 20 or 30 years. So I think we we would be absent some really huge oil shock of the 1970s type we're going to be pretty much insulated this time. I don't worry about it greatly. That's uh, that's encouraging to hear amidst all this dark news. So you you said earlier that you think that they
0: might go in to do the ground invasion. Do you think that Biden's very forward leaning approach by flying into Israel and having these negotiations, having these talks, addressing the war cabinet, and, and meeting all those first responders, do you think it's changed the tone of where this has go where this is going? Because it certainly felt to me like we were on the path to immediate retribution, no matter what, complete destruction of Hamas, no matter what. It seems that public opinion has tamped that down a little bit and that his visit was really incredibly successful. And especially considering he's got so much else to deal with right now, it's quite a remarkable show of force and power to the world at a time when the opposite numbers in China and Russia are trying to do the same thing, but not doing it as successfully. Well, how how well does Biden been doing here in terms of, or oh, oh, poorly, if you? That's your assessment in terms of in terms of reemerging the United States
2: as the dominant power in the world. My view is uh, he's he's doing uh, very well, certainly better than any other U.S. politician visible on our political scene could have done. Um, but uh, the reemergence of the U.S. as a, a significant or pivotal player in the Middle East is, for reasons that go beyond Biden's personal skills and experience and knowledge of and rapport with various leaders, et cetera, it's really the fact of the situation is that the, that it's faute de mieux. It's for want of anything else. Mm. If you take the U.S. out of the equation, who else is going to come in and, and be able to run shuttle diplomacy as Tony Blinken did for 48 hours? among all those capitals. I don't see Lavrov being able to do that. Well, certainly China's... Uh, I don't see the United Chinese States. foreign minister able to do that. But they can't. They can't. They might think they can. Certainly they try to do that. Uh, yeah. That, just, will, just, will, maybe someday. Maybe yeah. someday. But at this moment of crisis, the only country that could do so is the United States. And all the players, by their actions, are recognizing that.
0: And I think that's... So I think no,
2: there was more... There was. My expectation, first of all, I was not entirely happy that Biden planned to go for the reason I said earlier that I was worried that his seance with the war cabinet, et cetera, would too closely identify us with some brutal operation that might ensue as he was wheels up from uh, the airport. And I thought that might be very bad for us internationally and might undermine our ability to play a peacekeeping role in the aftermath of that. But I think that the plan for that visit included more than gestures of support for Israel in a a troubled time, sympathy, etc. I think that there was a very active system of behind-the-scenes diplomacy going on. And the cancellation of the Amman meetings scuppered at least part of that. Mm. And I think that clearly happened as a result of public pressures and the sort of uprisings that we saw in the streets all over the region. They just weren't able, the, the King of Jordan and the... Abdullah Sisi was just not able to carry that forward. They would have been persona non grata in their own capitals when they got back from them. In terms so of, I yeah. think the U.S. is playing a deeper game here. I think that we will continue to push. We'll see what he says tonight, Biden. Um, but I think the United States is, um, out of its own interest, in the interests of Israel and in the interests of peace, going to try to engineer uh, something which, has not really been attempted for fifteen or twenty years, and that is something approaching a two-state solution. Wow, those are words and that's a phrase that, um, that that that's a phrase that has not been uttered in public for a very long time. But you're hearing it now here in the U.S., and that certainly has been Biden's belief for a long period of time. Is
0: to is that two-state solution is the solution, and uh, he certainly hasn't been in favor of anything that Netanyahu has been proposing in the recent past. You might be absolutely on on point there, and we might see a silver lining out of this horrible event that happened. There might be a way to, to restart real conversations between all the players in the Middle East, and that would be uh, a remarkable achievement. And also, maybe yes. some, it could be approaching a lasting peace, which has been a dream for everyone for 75 years. Going on, now. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't to, that be great? Yeah, wonderful uh, hope for all of us to end uh, the show tonight and our conversation. Rick Petrie, thank you so much for joining me tonight. It's been a thrill to have you. It on. was a great pleasure. And uh, we, we'll have you back on nice next time, uh, unless less onerous circumstances or less horrendous circumstances. It's been great
2: talking to you. That Thank you. Be terrific. All the best. Thanks for having me. My pleasure.
0: Every minute of narratives reporting, every story that we break is made possible by our patrons. You too can become a patron by joining at patreon.com forward slash Narrative. Narrative,
1: where truth lives. One day you'll tell the story of autocrats, crooks, and kings who came for our freedom. A story of citizens who stood up to tyranny and won. people prevailed, and renewed an old vow to a more perfect union. And that was just the beginning. The story continues, narrative, where truth lives.